Sailors have a reputation as a superstitious lot, so it's understandable why they would take the wrong message from watching a champagne bottle bounce unbroken off the hull of the submarine they're about to board and take on its maiden voyage. I, a rationalist, look at this moment and am gratified to see that the hull of the ship and the hull of the wine are both well-made and capable of sustaining an impact without damage. But this is the moment that earns K-19 the first nuclear-powered submarine in the Soviet Navy, its reputation as a death trap. Rushed into service, the ship already has a body count before it's even out of dry dock, owing to the USSR's eagerness to deploy their newest weapon in the nuclear arms race. And now Captain Liam Neeson is going to have to take a half-step back and let Captain Harrison Ford take over, creating the perfect Captain XO conflict dynamic that is so widely prevalent in the subgenre. Heh. <laughs> subgenre. The K-19 is a first strike weapon. It's supposed to lurk around off the east coast of the United States, nuclearly deterring NATO from doing anything the USSR would make them regret. It seems like a simple task, but the ship itself might not be up to it. If you're like me, thinking that this champagne-proof boat is as well made on the inside as it is on the outside, think again. After some pretty intense, borderline foolhardy stress tests at the orders of Captain Ford, the ship successfully fires its test ICBM, but then quickly starts to suffer from engine problems. And that's bad, because the engine is just as nuclear as the missiles K-19 carries, and someone forgot to pack radiation suits. What the crew had bargained on being a cold war against the United States becomes an extremely hot war against a reactor meltdown as the cooling system has failed them, and the only way to fix it is by running a garden hose through an open door into the core. We've seen and enjoyed a couple of Catherine Bigelow's films before on the podcast, and I'm sad to say that unless I can convince John and Adam that Point Break is about a war on banks, this is her last film on the list. This is far from her strongest work, and Harrison Ford's Russian accent is singularly weird, which I hate to say is this show's number one Ford defender. But there is a lot going on in this film, and Bigelow's particular insight into the male psyche is given a playground of different characters and scenarios, so it's really worth watching. We deliver, or we drown, on today's Friendly Fire, and we review 2002's K-19, colon, The Widowmaker. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that we have to record 10 minutes at a time, and when we step out of the studio, we're covered with lesions and blood from head to toe. But we do it out of our sense of duty to each other and the union of Soviet maximum fun socialist podcasts. I'm Ben Harrison. I need to I need to set down my lunch that I was starting in on in the middle of that intro. I'm Adam Franica. And I'm John Roderick. <laughs> Longest intro. Yeah, I mean that uh what you're describing is a big, big part of this movie. It's the part where the sailors are turned into pudding in ten minute increments. It's pretty harrowing yeah. to watch. It is. You know, it, the submarine trope of somebody needing to go down into the bilge and then they get their foot trapped. Yeah. And they drown and the and the rest of the crew has to super reluctantly seal them off is quadrupled down upon in this movie because they're inside the reactor core getting yeah. their bones melted. 
you don't seal away these bodies. These bodies are welcomed back into the ship, put in a rack, and then just bandaged. Totally irritating everyone that touches yeah. them. Ugh. There is like actual practice surrounding radiation of like you can only be exposed for X amount of time because it's just it's a matter of probability, right? Like the amount of damage it's doing is is reckoned in a probabilistic way. So the less exposure overall that you have, the the less likelihood you have of symptoms. But 10 minutes seems to be a totally arbitrary number that the captain comes up with. I love how disinterested he and everyone else is in those probabilities because it doesn't matter. Well, this proximity to like an active core, I think you're screwed either way. Although although we see the captain go in and stick his head in there and pull the guy out and he lives to a ripe old age. I feel like this the setting of this movie 19 early 60s, right? 61 is that when we're we're set here? Yeah, I believe that is the the date of the maiden voyage of K19, which uh the 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 nickname that the actual sailors aboard the K19 gave it was Hiroshima, yeah. not the Widowmaker. But K-19 was the first Russian nuclear-powered intercontinental ballistic missile delivering submarine. So yeah. this was all new to them, right? This was the first one. So I'm sure the captain was like, uh, 10 minutes, 10 minutes each yeah. inside the popcorn maker. I think the Russians may have had su- submarines that were nuclear-powered before, but maybe weren't also Boomers. armed with nuclear missile missiles right, right what you want to do is build one of your first nuclear submarines as quickly as possible yeah yeah, yeah. race it get those bargain basement parts out there and slap it together i mean uh, did you read about the k19 the actual k19 right i mean it seems like that's what they did it's such yep. a fun conceit i mean a conceit argues that there's something manipulative about the storytelling here but like the idea of a race to ensure mutually assured destruction. Yeah. Being the mission for this for this boat is amazing, yeah. right? We've got to hurry up and get out there and appear on satellite. We need to be caught doing this test. Right. This boat is a piece of shit, but if we don't have it, there's nothing keeping the Americans from first striking us. I love that. So get that boat out to sea. Yeah. And you have to shoot a missile too, as you're saying, right? right. They have to they have to pick it up and know that we can do it. Yeah. Pretty crazy. But there is nothing fun about this movie. There is not a single fun moment of any kind. Nobody even slips on a banana peel. There's no <laughs> rickles. There's not even like yeah, one a, guy slips in front of the truck and gets and greased. Gets greased. There's no no one ever no one ever smiles. I watched this film Roderick style, which is to say uh, not in a bathtub, but after midnight. Yeah. And I was not sleepy at all. I watched this During. movie in the bathtub kept me after up. midnight. And I love watching submarine movies in the bathtub. Oh, that sounds nice. Because because whenever someone is, you know, bathing in radioactive grease water, that's basically <laughs> what I'm doing too. Yeah. I really feel like one of the cast, one of the cast and crew. Also, I was wearing a stripy Russian submarine sailor shirt. It's a good look. I love the look of that shirt. What are all of the black cats in this film? There's there's the slapdash way the sub has been built. They run the test and all the electricals are fucked. 
you're going through this with your house right now. You gotta right. you gotta rip out all those electricals. We're using the wrong the wrong kind of fuses here. There's we the got, fact that the nuke officer is a drunk. Drunk nuke officer, uh, ship surgeon hit by a truck. He got hit by a truck. Wrong drugs. Uh, and also uh, no radiation suits right, on the, the boat. Just, they just had chemical suits because they didn't have any radiation suits in the warehouse. And on and on. Yeah. And the champagne doesn't break when they, uh, yeah. when they commission the ship. Champagne doesn't break. And also a new captain has been put in charge over a beloved captain. If you do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. It's bad luck to have two captains on one boat, right? We see this in almost every submarine movie. That there's a beloved yeah. captain, and then there's a then there's a hated captain over the top that ends up uh, it ends up that his draconian processes uh, save the day in the end, and he wins the respect of everybody. But through the whole movie, we hate his guts. But you can never hate Harrison Ford's guts, and that's the problem with the casting here. Ooh, it is very stunty feeling to me. It's super stunty. It's such unusual casting. Like, like we've talked a lot about the way Harrison Ford uh, picks roles or is chosen for roles on this show. And this is one of very few movies I can think about where he is pretty unlikable for most of the movie. And he, like, he achieves some redemptive uh, moments toward the end. But, uh, but he kind of plays the villain in a lot of ways. But he agreed to do this movie because he's the ultimate, he was ultimately right the whole time. Right? <laughs> I mean, Harrison Ford, if he had actually been a villain, if he had actually ever done a single wrong thing, but Her I'm sure he read this script and he was like, yeah, well, he's the guy, you know, he's the, he is the Finnish carpenter of this movie. Did either of you see this in the theater? I think I did see it in the theater. Do you want to know the crazy thing? This movie is so tropey that I don't know. <laughs> I was I was watching this and I was like, I've seen absolutely every single one of these scenes. I've seen Harrison Ford. I've seen Liam Neeson. I don't think I saw it in the theaters. And the, re the one thing that felt foreign to me was Harrison Ford doing an accent. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen him do an accent. And now you know why. He's doing the the Soviet speaking in the he's sort of doing Boris and Natasha, but slightly less. And Liam Neeson also, you know, got swept into it and he's also speaking with a little bit of a little The weird fucking movie equation happening in my brain as I watched Harrison Ford in this is like Harrison Ford was Jack Ryan. And yeah. Jack Ryan was in Hunt for Red October. Wait a minute. But not Harrison Ford. That was Ooh. the other Jack Ryan. The better Jack Ryan. Let's, but also, go, let's be clear. Harrison Ford was in a Tom Clancy movie, basically wearing the American flag around himself in the movie poster. Right. That's clear and present danger. Right. They made the exact same movie poster for K-19, except it's Harrison Ford's big face and a bunch of... Wearing the hammer and sickle around his shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> it's so confusing. It is, and this is to Harrison, me anyway. The way my mind works, I, I I couldn't get out of that headspace. Clear and present danger is the beginning of Harrison Ford refusing to smile anymore. Yeah, and this movie is deep, deep in it. Like you could have tickled him in this movie, and he wouldn't have smiled. He really like like his choices uh, to to look Russian. I must scowl. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. That's our whole thing, right? The Russians. The, the Russians have no sense of humor and the Russians have no, they're, they're, it's it's all just like step out of line and 
Yeah, and you're in handcuffs. What is more dangerous to the crew, this reactor or her captain? It sure feels like this captain is going to get everyone killed, and I'm definitely on Liam Neeson's side on this throughout, right? I was shocked when Liam Neeson puts down the mutiny. It seems like a thing, like if you were to buy a muscle car on Craigslist, and when you went to look at it, you said, right, this car needs everything, right? It needs new shocks. It needs new brakes. It needs new rubber. It needs everything. And then as you drove away from the transaction, you were like, let's put this car through the paces. And you drove it like you were driving it for a car and driver review the day it came off the assembly line. Yeah. That's what his like recklessness read. He's as. hot rod dad. He is. He's hot rod dadding like a pinto. Yeah. I literally wrote a note. Don't lend your new car to Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've never seen a I've never seen a movie where the pressure of going down below the operational uh, depth actually caused the outside of the sub to crinkle. That was fun. That was that oh, was wow. new, right? We we all we always see bolts popping and water spraying. You hear this thing, things that sound like metal warping, but you never actually see the metal a warp. Although the underwater shots, the sub in action shots underwater in this one were as bad as Red October or worse. I I didn't I didn't find them believable at all. But they built a full mock-up of this sub for the for the Bodhi scenes, and I and I liked it. This movie had a one hundred million dollar budget. They had a one to one perfect reproduction of the interior of the real K nineteen. Wow! That was different only in that they put built tracks into the ceiling that they could suspend the camera from, so that when they did those long bombing shots down down the ship they could you know stabilize the camera without without bringing in a bunch of rails that uh you know wouldn't match with the rest of the set but then they also had like a a, a real submarine that they heavily modified to look like the exterior of the sub and then they uh yeah they i, I agree they kind of fell apart when they went to underwater shots of it because I, I think it's probably models with some digital like bubbles added but Somehow, that was uh, too difficult to make look good in 2002. Where is that mock-up of K-19? Can you go tour it? Can you hook a chair up to the camera rails and ride through the mock-up of the submarine like you're on a zipline? You know, Spielberg actually borrowed the K-19 for an Indiana Jones film (laughs) and uh, returned it after a week. That's the story of this production. Uh, He's nice constantly doing that. Uh, the 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 interior set I think was on a soundstage, but the 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 sub that they modified I think wound up sinking, and then the Navy used it for a while to like do to do like training exercises, like while it was submerged. I love everything about that. Yeah, it's cool. Know that, comrade captain. How many? You know, we we should keep a running tally. How many submarine movies we've watched? They all are more alike than different. But yeah. this is the rare one where there is no enemy. Yeah. They are not ever engaged except except after they've already, basically, they're dead in the water. The Americans make an appearance as friendly helpers. Uh, and that's an, that's an interesting 
sort of scene where they are their friendly help is rejected because yeah they're an obstacle and not a savior right but but all the tension all the drama in this movie is man against machine and men against one another one of the things that maybe sets this movie apart as a submarine film is that like they they head out they're doing they're doing the obligatory drills that happen at inconvenient times and drilling way harder than seems reasonable to the uh, the uninitiated people watching at home and then about i don't know a little bit earlier than halfway through the movie they finish the mission and they they launch the missile like the thing that they were ordered to see to go do they do and then it's like and, oh since you're out there why don't you go yeah, why don't you go be a first strike vehicle parked off the coast of uh, of Manhattan or whatever? Did you approach the film knowing its story? I had a vague, as someone who has researched a lot of serial killers and a lot of submarine accidents, I knew about <laughs> it, but I, but going into it, I didn't remember which one of the many submarine disasters this one was. Once it started unfolding, I was like, oh, this is the one that. That, like, irritated everybody. It was very enjoyable, like Ben was saying. Like, the the mission succeeds halfway through. It was, it was enjoyable to watch this film and not have any idea what the second half of the film was going to be about. Yeah. I remembered the, the nuclear accident element of it uh, from whenever I saw it the first time and, um, and was bracing myself for that because I remembered it being very harrowing and... I, I, it really is. I, I almost wish the movie had figured out a way to have a little bit more descriptive language around what the, what the risks are and what, what is happening to their bodies and stuff. Because like they, un- unfortunately they get this like replacement doctor who eventually confesses he knows nothing about radiation sickness. He's like, he was like the base doctor at the submarine base doesn't have anything to do with his specialty and and so we see these guys coming out melty i read that they dialed back how disgusting that actually would have been uh because they didn't think it, that uh moviegoers would believe it but like what happens to bodies that are subjected to that amount of radiation is like way worse than what's what's depicted in this film they just look burned alive huh yeah wow. and 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 we just watch it and and our you know, like, like we are given no information as to why radiation does that to, to people. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's not interesting to other people, but I, I kind of missed it. I feel like it was a plot device because nobody on the boat knew either. So there wasn't anybody that, that could explain it. And um, maybe the only one that did was uh, was uh, the Peter Sarsgaard character, but he was too deep in his panic attack. You know what? I was just going to mention that like there's such an interesting tension between the people who know the consequences of their actions and the people who don't. And Skarsgård is one of the few characters who does. And his fear presents in almost the same way. Yeah. And Sarsgaard is is so often like uh, he's a lovable Mm -hmm. character in movies. Uh, He's got he's got a sweet face. Uh, when he showed up, I was like, oh, that's fun. I like him. I'm glad he's in this movie. Yeah. And then the movie really exploits our yeah. intrinsic like of this actor. As stunty as you might feel the other casting choices have been, like him as that character was 
totally traumatizing to me when he broke down. Yeah. He really played that great. He did. And that was a, and then you're, then you're in a position where you really hate him. Yeah. But you also can't blame him. No. That's got to be a tough role to take as an actor, right? Because like you're being like the most hateable guy on, on the boat. For it's not the role that Harrison Ford would ever take. No, and hated because <laughs> right. you're a coward, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. cowardice in a war movie is is like the greatest crime. Right. We watch guys commit terrible atrocities in these movies, but the movie doesn't want you to turn against them. You know what? There's such a physical reaction to what he's doing as an actor that that is different from the quote unquote cowards that we see in other war films, like. A coward in a war film is frequently like a crying, I don't want to do it guy. But Peter Sarsgaard can't even speak. And right. he's like spazzing. There are no measures. It's useless. He's the only one that we know anything about his life off of the submarine. Yeah. We meet his his uh, fiance. So when he collapses, we we have that additional knowledge that he's like, I'm I have a life like I'm going to get married. I got called into this at the last minute. This isn't where I'm supposed to be. So you so you understand his his meltdown <laughs> meltdown. I got it. <laughs> Lol. He's the classic. <laughs> we aren't even supposed to be here guy. Right. Right. So why should I be the hero right now? Yeah. I'm just trying to wait this out and get home. Do you hate Harrison Ford for not abandoning ship? I really do. Scuttle that baby and get off. Does does a American-made war film about American servicemen ever present them with a dilemma like this? Like, mm. essentially turn over our material to the enemy and save your skin or everybody dies. Well, so that's an interesting subtext of this movie. And I think it is, it's brought to the fore in that scene where the propaganda officer the commissariat guy is showing them a film of America and it starts off with Americans, you know, doing the jitterbug or whatever. And then (laughs) it, then it quickly pivots to scenes of race riots. And he's giving this critique of the United States that, Oh, we're meant, you know, what they project is only consumerism and it looks like fun and individuality. But then what they don't show you is, racist cops and i mean he basically gives a critique of america that actually would resonate with most of twitter in 2018 yeah it resonates today but i have uh, i have a moment of pedantry about that actually some of those fire hose scenes didn't happen until later yeah the film shown by the political officer shows civil rights abuses committed in birmingham in 1964 right. four years after the k-19 was launched exactly Actually, three, because initial voyage was 4th of July, 1961. I want to amend what I said before about the the commissar being right in his... in in his class, in his teaching about American civics. I, like, what I want to say is that we are not just one or the other. And I think the message that he's giving the students in that, in the torpedo room, is that we are all of those things. And we continue to be all of those things. We are not just the good parts. We are not just the jitterbug, and we are not just the clan. But you see the you see the sailors respond to the that that footage, and they're horrified. Yeah. And um and what his point is in the end is, and he says it that 
what makes America an immoral country is individualism, which is a weird point for an American movie to make that, that the reason the captain is acting the way he does is that they have a, that they have a, an ethic within their military and within their nation at the time that no one person, no group of people even are, are more important than the collective whole of the Soviet union. And I think in American film, the individuality of each person, if they were confronted with this, I think it would be, well, we wouldn't have a movie because the American captain would scuttle the boat and they'd all go to the movies or they'd all go out and grab a fire hose and, (laughs) and spray some civil rights protesters or whatever it is that Americans like to do on weekends. But like the, the, the act, the, the selfless act of going into the reactor and, and jerry rigging the the coolant thing is a kind of self sacrifice we see soldiers make in all kinds of movies but maybe in american movies that self or that sacrifice even resonates more because the heroism is so individual you see it in a lot of different ways in this film too there's the ordered sacrifice and then there's also the request sacrifice that happens later on when when Liam Neeson's character hips Harrison Ford's character to the idea of you know you could just ask yeah sure run it by everybody ask them to sacrifice themselves for you and you might get a a different reaction you get all different kinds there's a lot to unpack when Americans make movies about Russians. We fight in Soviet Union, but we fight nowhere. Particularly like this cold, sort of a Cold War revisionism. At the time, I don't, you know, an American audience would have, I mean, maybe like relished their their Keystone copness. But of course, in 1961, we couldn't characterize them as this sort of broken and befuddled because our military industrial complex relied on the idea that they were super soldiers. Right. And they had super advanced technology that we needed to be constantly innovating past. Right. That's why we needed, I mean, in 1961, we were, we were ducking and covering and these guys couldn't, you know, they were out. Yeah. I mean, like (laughs) Russians have the reputation of fighting while on fire and charging at you. (laughs) They do. That's, Something we know about them. Yeah. This movie came out in 2002 and would have been in production in 2001, like maybe even during the September 11th attacks. Our enemy had changed as far as like Hollywood was concerned, but this was probably written in that time where we're like, oh, I don't know, are we fighting the Russians still or are we uh, like, who, who are the bad guys uh, that we default to? And so that's also like a, a weird a weird choice. Like what does a filmmaker mean to say about our quote unquote former enemy when they set set about making this movie sometime in two thousand one? It sure seemed to have an effect on its ability to make money. It doesn't seem like there was much of an appetite for this type of film. It made sixty five million worldwide. Oof. Yeah. Well, in 2001, we were into the Putin century, right? We were coming out of the Yeltsin years, and that was a period, I think, where where we felt, I mean, America relaxed toward Russia and felt like maybe they're our friends now, maybe democracy, maybe capitalism. 
And if democracy, and I mean, we already we already saw the rise of the oligarchs, but there was there was that period where it felt like, well, once capitalism arrives in a place, their access to blenders and <laughs> uh, you know, and coffee makers is going to. Why would they ever go back? Why would they choose authoritarianism when they could choose uh, this selection of DVRs? DVDs that play DVRs. We have made Coca-Cola and Levi's available to them. They should surely be our friends now. What else is there? And it was a, I think it was a weird period. um, And maybe it was exactly the time when you could make a big Hollywood movie that, that was exclusively about Russians and make them feel and make it feel like they were heroic. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. There's a lot of demonstrable heroism in this film and the sacrifices that a lot of the characters make for the rest of the crew. You get that. But Harrison Ford's character isn't a hero and neither is Liam Neeson's. And yet they get the they get the epilogue at the end. They get the toast with the rest of the crew. I feel like that is a scene constructed mainly to forgive and lionize. Right. Well, because they weren't lionized in their time, the actual no. the actual men, uh, all this had to be kept secret, and and so the loneliness of having experienced all of that, and then there's no, you don't get to be a hero of the Soviet Union, you don't get to command a submarine ever again. No, you just wither away. That that's some that's some authentic pathos. Yeah, I mean, not as bad as dying of nuclear poisoning. I guess in saying that, what I'm trying to draw attention to is the idea that the main characters of this film are not heroes in a conventional war film sense. Right, right. And that's interesting. Not even likable. Yeah. No no one's likable in this But movie. this is a Catherine Bigelow thing too, right? When, when she makes a film about men with challenging jobs, they're frequently anti-heroes or they or they frequently don't rise to the level of conventional hero status that we get in a lot of other person's films right is this is this part of a a theme where does this movie fit in her 
She had made, I think she had made Strange Days already. She'd made Point Break. So this was like maybe not in the middle of her career. Oh yeah, middle of her career, right? Because Hurt Locker was 2008. Yeah, she she had made The Weight of Water immediately before this. Took a pretty long break in between K-19. She did one short film and one TV episode before 2008 when she did The Hurt Locker. So turning in a, a movie that makes back $35 million less than you spent on it definitely definitely would scuttle most directors' careers permanently. Sure, it bumps you down to Because The Hurt Locker felt almost like an indie movie. Yeah, they were definitely not risking the same amount of uh, amount of dough on that one. She escaped from director jail spectacularly right. with that movie. Yeah, absolutely. But so few get that opportunity, even. Right. So the experience of being in a submarine movie is always claustrophobic. It's always only dudes. It's always sort of man against machine and man against man. Is this... A good one. I think for tension reasons alone, yes. Like, I can't explain why my body felt the way it did as I watched the film, but I was totally wrapped. Well, it is using the tropes very heavily. Like, it does sort of surprising things with them. The uh, exo-captain conflict is right out of almost every submarine film we've seen. And then it isn't like when when the exo comes back and he's got a a, a mutiny tied up with a bow uh, <laughs> presented to him in in uh, pretty packaging. Uh, he he rejects that mutiny and that that was a total stunner. Like, I mean, it's it's totally made up. Like, it doesn't have anything to do with the real story of K nineteen. But um, but boy, what a moment, right? Right and. Uh- Submarine movies often threaten us with mutiny, but it always falls short of, or or almost always falls short of actual mutiny. And this one goes over the top. Yeah, and and like they also really set their conflict aside when they are first jerry rigging the secondary coolant system. Like, there's a thirty minute span in the middle of this two hour film where they stop being at loggerheads with each other just to get the ship survivable for for a, a while, you know? And then it's like, not again. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing they didn't talk about was he did, the captain did justify his actions by saying, if this boat went critical and blew up on the surface yeah. and took out that American destroyer, that that might be the thing that, that triggered a, a a war response from the U.S. And we all kind of go, hmm, oh, I hadn't thought of that. What we didn't cover was no, no character said, yeah, but if we scuttle the boat and it goes to the bottom of the ocean and then blows up, it'll be like one of those scenes. It'll be like a depth charge scene where the ocean goes blorp and then <laughs> we're fine, right? I mean, if it if I don't know if we've ever seen a nuke explode on the bottom of the sea. Yeah, it's not just a fart in a bathtub, John. 
What does it blow real big? I mean, would it if the, if the if the sub sank down to wherever the Titanic is? Like, what would it do? It would. Well, they say that it's a the water is a mile deep where they are, so that's like like that's why they want to take it down. Is that if it blows, it's not going to blow up in a way that triggers ICBMs. Yeah, I mean, maybe it maybe it vaporizes the ocean right around there. I don't know. I, I honestly, this is this is like a question that I'm really curious about. What happens if a bomb goes off deep, deep down? Does it set? Does it trigger a tectonic plate problem? Is it like the worst example of grenade fishing ever? Like, is yeah. there like 200 whales? Yeah, dead whales come to the surface and 200 dead whales. Be pretty awful. Is this the same premise as as Red October? Because like the this is a first strike submarine that is meant to park missiles off the coast of Washington and New York, and and the captain of the ship in that move in Red October is like horrified by the the implications of the Red October. These guys definitely are not. No, the, the, it gives us a little Red October a temptation. But it's the opposite of Red October. There is no defection, but the but the Russian government thinks that that's what's happening. They're worried about it. they're worried about a Red October. Yeah. There's a pride also in leveling up your mission a little bit. Like you you succeeded the first time. Guess what's next? The best patrol. Yeah, that's right. Between Washington and New York, you're the you're the Acela submarine. Everybody feels really <laughs> yeah <laughs> on time and under budget. Yeah. Uh, everybody seems really proud of that, right? When they, when he's like, we have a new mission. Mm-hmm. Go be a badass. Uh, the crew is like, yeah, cool. High fives all around. 300 meters is close to crush depth. I know. I wondered why they didn't just open the windows. You know, like, let that, let that radiation get out. Put some fans up. You know, like, when you burn a ham. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly why I felt a little at sea with the with the radiation stuff is the the movie does not teach you the rules of this kind of radiation is it scarier for you to know or not know though i think the tension makes is is easier to achieve when you do because like the rules are, are very specific and like different kinds of radiation have different rules but i think if they set that up it would have been even more tense for me. What is the kind of radiation that turns you into a Spider-Man? But that's, it's the spider that got the radiation, and then the right. spider did the biting. Right. It has to be transferred through a spider. Yeah. That's the worst kind of radiation, or the best, depending on whether or not you want to be a Spider-Man. Good thing that mouse didn't bite anyone after being irradiated. Turn, turn somebody into Mouse Man? Yeah. What are your powers if you're Mouse Man? What kind of radiation takes you into the Spider-Verse? It's got to be gamma radiation. You just knew that the introduction of that mouse to the scene was oh, going to yeah. be the uh, the mouse in the coal mine. Canary. Yeah, no? that's right. Almost all of the movies we've watched for this show, with the exception of a of a very few, um, Paths of Glory or what? No, Paths of Glory made it made it during this period. Almost every movie we've watched was made during the uh, the nuclear era where nukes were a constant presence and a constant threat to everyone who was making the movie and going to the theaters to watch the movies. And yet this is the rare movie where nukes play a significant role. 
where where nuclear power and the dangers of it are like a like a present character in the film. For the most part, most of the movies we watch either ignore uh, the nuclear question entirely by preferring to go fight a manageable war somewhere. Yeah, the the movie we watched last week was was had this stuff set in the post tsunami disaster area in Japan, and there was no mention of the uh, the nuclear reactor there. Right, right. Doctor Strange, love. We see a nuke go off, but like it's real, and that's the thing about Mash and all those Korean War things and all the Vietnam movie stuff. It's all mo- they're all movies about wars that are happening during a period when nukes are poised and we're scared of them, but these are all the proxy wars. We love watching proxy wars get fought because, because you know that the worst that's going to happen is somebody drops a bomb or some napalm, but there just aren't that many movies where it really explores the cold war and the, and the dangers it's more boring, I guess, <laughs> because it's all psychological. Hey, man, Godzilla's a movie about nukes. That's right. Godzilla is. We've talked about watching Shin Godzilla, but I don't think original Godzilla's on our list. Should it Godzilla, be? Godzilla, 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 Godzilla. Boom, boom. I mean, boom, speaking boom, of that, boom, uh, boom, boom. one thing I appreciated in this movie was they didn't use the Geiger counter sound as a shorthand for there are nuclear or radioactive things around until the Geiger counter was actually out and getting carried around the ship. Right. Like we, like so many corny movies where there's, there's radiation somewhere, like just seeing the radioactive thing, they give you those little, like the oh, little right. Geiger counter clicks just to, just to kind of, you know, underline the radioactiveness of it. This movie totally resists that temptation. And then a guy actually has a Geiger counter and it's going crazy. Can you imagine what a bummer that would be? You're just sitting in your bunk looking at your dead mouse and the guy comes by and points that little rod at you. And it's like, (laughs) well, that was a neat scene too. Like uh, the counterpoint to that is the guy getting the Geiger counter waved at him and his back is turned and they're like, tell him he's fine. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because it doesn't matter. Right. Tell would him you want to be told or would you want to be told that you're fine? I it, think you know also if you're not fine, right? Yeah, but in a situation like that where you're still trapped in a submarine under the ocean, I would rather be told I was fine. Yeah. Save it. Save it for later. Yeah. To me, it, it felt less like the moment where the soldier is on the slab and is like, I can't feel my legs. Are they still there? And they go, yeah, yeah, no, no, they're there. And more like this is Soviet Ministry of Information dissembling about the truth. Kind of. Ooh, like, it give felt me a couple more, like more pages was... of that paper. <laughs> That's I mean, interesting. I don't, know, I don't know what gave me that feeling, but it was like these these people are all comfortable with kind of bending reality you know to to achieve a mission kind of kind of a thing wow i did not make that connection but that makes a lot of sense there is a weird the movie does not make draw a clear line between the motivations that the sailors have as sailors as as just men in a confronted with uh with a situation where you have camaraderie where you have 
uh, a broken command structure and where you have a, an imminent danger versus sailors that are part of an indoctrinated political culture that are doing things because they are communist automatons and are thinking of the motherland. Cause there's a lot of talk of like, I'm doing this for the motherland. No, I'm doing this for the motherland. Uh, and we usually see someone in a situation like this, roll their eyes at Sovietism, right? One of the characters would be sort of more of a realist and less of an indoctrinate. And we get a little bit of that because the political officer is like Liam Neeson definitely brushes past him, gives him the straight arm a few times. Yeah. But that guy doesn't end up being a creepy traitor. Like he ends up kind of being enfolded in the, I mean, he does, he's one of the two conspirators, Mm -hmm. but he, but he ends up being, I mean, I guess that's the weird moment, right? Where, where the political officer that was the, that was the stick up the ass guy ends up one of the mutineers. Yeah, strangely, the mutiny seems pretty reasonable in this film. Like, they have a very reasonable fear, and, like, what they want is to get the ship back in control of somebody that isn't insisting on irradiating them to protect state secrets, right? Right. Do you think the commissar is on that team because of a sense of self-preservation, or does he believe a mutiny is actually justified given his reasons politically. I think he seems weak willed and scared. Yeah. I think he's super scared. He's in a little bit, in a little way. His job doesn't provide cover for this decision is what I'm asking. Boy, I don't know. I don't know how he thinks he's going to walk away from this mutiny. I don't see how any of them think that they're going to come back to the, to the, headquarters having sunk their ship well i mean the justification is is reading the rule book like that's they they say it to each other like right but but they're making they're doing the thing where they are trying to save the crew by dumping this billion dollar submarine and i don't think there's anybody up the chain of command back at old khrushchev hq that's gonna that's gonna endorse that decision yeah There are a lot of Burks in that meeting going, the submarine has a very high dollar value. <laughs> there are. There are. So I don't know how they, I don't know how the mutineers, and the mutiny is a, is a, is fake, right? It's a fantastical element here. Yeah. yeah the real captain of the submarine uh, raided the weapons locker and then dumped all of what he found inside overboard to Threw prevent- all the guns overboard? To prevent a possible mutiny from ever happening. They can bill me. That's one way to do it. So the mutiny is a fiction, but yeah, I don't see how the mutineers thought that they were going to be the heroes of this story. They're just trying to survive, I guess. I want to watch that movie. How does the captain get sole access to the weapons locker and then take all of its contents up top, topside, and then dump them into the water? Right. You, you can't imagine that he's carrying an armload of AK-47s up the ladder. <laughs> you got to make multiple trips. Yeah, right. So he must have had some sailors that he was, he still had enough com- control that he was like, all right, you guys, yeah, dump your guns. Yeah. Maybe he like put them all in, in like duffel bags and then said like, all right, bucket brigade, we're throwing whatever's in these duffel bags overboard because they're heavy. We need to cut weight. You know, it's, it's not the flashiest scene, but one of the tropey submarine scenes I really love is the loading of the sub before 
before shoving off for the mission. That, you talk about that bucket brigade band. Like I love seeing yeah. crates of oranges and like especially the food. I love seeing food going into a sub. That's neat. Yeah. That whole sequence felt very directly like an homage to Das Boot. Yeah, yeah. This question may not have an answer with our assembled minds here, but on a modern submarine, there's got to be an easier way to load one of those. There's a there's like a there's a specific cargo door for loading a submarine nowadays, right? Mm-hmm. That's a little bit more efficient. Uh, yeah, like you get in on one side, but then like sometimes they have the door open on the other <laughs> side, and they're pushing in the the service carts. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's got to mini- be it. Miniature bottles of vodka. Yeah, uh, we've got many submariners in our in our audience for friendly fire. If you've got if you have an answer for how they load up a I submarine before use, going out, I'd they, like to know more about that. I think they have a sort of palletized system. You know, they're, they're, you're not fitting a pallet down the aisle of a submarine. Though. No, but they have they have doors in submarines. They have big doors. <laughs> yeah, but those them. are for the missiles. No, they have other doors. You know, they have submarines that look like submarines, and inside the submarine is another submarine. They're like Russian nesting dolls, except it's got like a special Navy SEAL submarine in it. And the submarine drops the little Navy SEAL submarine out yeah. of the middle. If they can do that, they can bring in a pallet of oranges. It, it gives birth to a little baby. It does. It does. <laughs> when I was at when I was out at Banger here on my submarine tour, um, with my submarine Banger, my submarine hardly pals, knew that sub base. Ugh, uh, there was a there was a sub there that the that the chief was like, that's not really a that's not a boomer, which is a, their their terminology for a nuke launching one. Mm-hmm. That's not the other kind either. That's not a patrol submarine or, you know, a fighting one. Mm-hmm. It's a different kind. And I was like, what kind? And they were like, we can't tell you. And I said, is it one of those ones that's got the seals in it? And they were like, wink, wink. No, we don't. <laughs> we don't know what you're talking about. Wink, wink. And, I, and they were playing around, of course. And I was playing around. But it was really cool. I bet the wow. seal sub is so small that you still need to hand load your oranges into no, it. No, no, no. They, they, it, they make it bigger. They like they like fatten it up. They put an extra section in there. Back at the they have to have extra oranges for the seals. Yeah, those guys eat a lot of oranges. You they mean- eat them Denzel style. <laughs> <laughs> Sticker and all. They just bite into them like a freaking apple. Well, it's a family tradition. I'm not full of sub movies. Every other friendly fire movie could be a sub movie for all I care. Yeah, that's possible. Which is interesting because I feel like we've seen a couple of Stalingrad films, for example. I feel like I'm doing okay on Stalingrad right now. See, what they- I'm the opposite. I would watch a lot more Stalingrad movies, and eh? I feel like sub-movies... I mean, what are the... What do we got in a submarine? We got You're Trapped. We got the... We've Gone Too Deep, Captain. You've got a... What are you doing? Everybody's looking over their shoulder at him like, 300, 310, 320, Captain, 330. We see that every time. I, I haven't seen Das Oranges, the submarine movie about how many oranges you can put into a submarine. Captain, we're running out of oranges. <laughs> Nary a depth charge in this film. That's true. Yeah. That's Nary true. a torpedo is fired. There's no naval combat. None. No naval combat at all. And and although they fire a they fire an ICBM which we which we never see. Yeah. I can't think of another sub movie that deals with the reactor at all. Like 
they've definitely had the diesel motor go out in in some of the World War II films we've watched, but the reactor being the problem is I can't think of any other sub movies like that. I mean, every Star Trek episode, which is effectively yeah. a sub movie. Yeah, the Scotty warp is, core is yeah. the nuclear reactor. Yeah, Scotty's always down there saying that he can't get enough power. Right. Spock is always mustering up the courage to to go in and that's right. Rejigger the cooling system. <laughs> I will fight no more forever. And then he gets torpedoed down to a Gaia bomb, and then resurrected uh, and. St- Talks to whales or whatever. I you guys are the experts. There's a Roger Trek. Ebert quote on uh, Wikipedia about this very issue. Movies involving submarines have the logic of chess. The longer the game goes, the fewer possible remaining moves. K-19 joins a tradition that includes Das Boot, Hunt for Red October, and goes all the way back to Run Silent, Run Deep. The variables are always oxygen, water pressure, and the enemy. Can the men breathe? Will the sub implode? Will depth charges destroy it? Is your captain so. trying to kill you? Right. Is yeah. the XO the real hero of this movie? Right. The captain and XO thing is so endemic to the subgenre that I I wonder what like if there's some truth to it. Like, <laughs> I mean, like it, it's not obvious, right? Like that the the captain and his first officer would always have a disagreement. Every time a, a submarine puts to sea. Because <laughs> there's a captain and an executive officer on every ship. It's not right. Right. I mean, you could just, you could be in a minefield. But somehow the second you seal them into the ship and sink it, they get really cranky with each other. Yeah. Why is the XO always the one that's the most intimate with the crew? He's always the one that is the most lenient with them. He thinks of himself as a father or an older brother. And then in comes stern and cranky. Captain who's like, let's see what this ship can do. Drills, drills, drills. Over and over. So many drills. I mean, that's kind of how this podcast goes. Yeah, I guess so. You know, you two guys in your stripy shirts were just chomping on oranges, and then I showed up. (laughs) Said no more penis jokes. Harrison Ford, (laughs) his character's dad in this movie, was sent to the gulag for being insufficiently like what's the reason like that that was that era when totally loyal and competent and great soviet heroes were sent to gulags just because stalin was afraid that they had too many friends i feel like this movie is trying to make you believe this is why his character is the way he is right he's got a chip on his shoulder i will follow the rules to a t i will drill people until they die no one's ever going to question my loyalty but the movie makes the 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 characters within the movie make the case that he married some high-ranking daughter of a polyblower uh member and that's why he has to fight to make his bones because people think he's a Think he's a stuffed shirt, like a social climber. I think much like the threat of radiation, I think it is more interesting and more scary for you not to know his backstory, because I don't believe the film succeeds in making that a reason he is the way he is. Right. It doesn't really. He never shows any doubt because it's freaking Harrison Ford. He won't allow it. Yeah. God damn you, Harrison Ford! If you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Show a little freaking vulnerability. I want to see you play a bad guy. You know, and you can use the same accent that you used in this movie. Original cut of K nineteen, Harrison Ford went into the reactor room first, but uh, in this version, he sends a bunch of his sailors in. 
Oh, right, right, right. From the other Star Trek. Right. <laughs> Star Wars, colon, the other Star Trek. <laughs> We're making a bunch of shirts on this I episode. Star Wars. Yeah, this is going to be good. It's going to be great for us. I'm going to make you pay for what you've done. My, uh, my daughter understands that Star Wars is the original Star Wars. She calls it number one, hmm. but she also calls it a new hope. And no matter what I've done to explain to her that that is some revisionism, that's some retroactive appellation that we do not accept in this She's family. She's getting that from the neighbors, We right? call it Star Wars here. Uh-huh. But she calls it a new hope because that's what the kids call it. And she, you know, yeah. she's pretty well, well John, versed in the it. the generals are always fighting the last war. Well, that's exactly right. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to die on that Generation X cross. <laughs> I'm going to die on that Generation XX. It's called Star Wars. Which means you'll be sort of crucified at a uh, 45 That's degree right. angle. That's right. That's right. They X you. That'll just look silly. Yeah. No, no, no. You can be crucified at the normal way, but you're on an X. Oh, the X is yeah. is tilted at 45 degrees, not you. Because when you're on a Your cross. Your legs are splayed out also. Yeah. You look like you're on it. You look like you're on an X, right? I you see. just need to get the legs out. Yeah. Which would be worse, right? Yeah, come on, Jesus. Get with the program. Get yeah. those legs out. Get on an X. Yeah, you, you know, Jesus isn't taking a lot of ball shots with his, uh, with his, with his feet nailed to the bottom part of the that's cross. Right. That's like the if, you were, if you were on an X with legs yeah, spread, that's the problem. you know those Romans would be going after those nuts. Well, sure. It's rating and review time on Friendly Fire, and the reason that each film gets a custom rating system it's is so uh, movies about Russia can't be compared to each other. Film last week was Stalingrad. This week's film is K-19. We can't have a rating system of five fathers for K-19. It wouldn't make any sense. The idea that we would compare the two films is totally unacceptable. That's why K-19 gets a rating system of between... One in five unbroken christening bottles. Just swinging. (laughs) Wow, you're really... Just swinging in the dark. You're taking it to the next level here. It's a real tone setter. It's it's hat on a hat tone setting. It's black cat on black cat. It's cat on a cat. They all look at each other. That bottle bounces and we see every main character look over his shoulder at every other main character and go, oh shit. That's a One bad of them sign. just says out loud, we are cursed. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot like that bottle giving you that sense that something's not quite right. Maybe the, the, the film and the adventure is haunted. I think casting Harrison Ford as the Russian captain haunts the film. If you can't turn the corner with him as a Russian captain speaking in a kind of fucked up broken russian english dialect like it's not good take this sub to 300 meters he is not making consistent decisions with his l's and his r's he is depending on his face to make this movie work and i think when you're harrison ford you can do that you can credibly do it your face can get you through the performance but when you're playing a russian person who speaks english your L's and your R's need to sound right. There needs to be a commitment to that, that there just wasn't. But if you can set that aside and just go with it, go with the sub movie as a thing that you love, which I was able to do, this film is very satisfying. It's, it's, 
if not capably made, extremely well made as as subgenre films go. The casting is stunty and interesting. I mean, swap Harrison Ford for who? What if it was Robert Redford? What if this what if the Robert Redford from 2001 was playing this captain? It might suffer from the same problems. I'd see that movie. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think I'd like it equally. Maybe it doesn't matter who the 60-year-old dad is playing the captain of this Russian sub. We've seen this movie with um with the captain being played by the dude from Tornado movie. Yeah. There's Tornado Dad. Yeah, Tornado Dad. <laughs> and we didn't like that movie any better. No. Um, who's the actor? Is it Jeff Bridges? You're talking about Matt McConaughey <laughs> in that other... You're no. talking about Tornado Dad being... No, Tornado Dad is the other guy. It's, uh, it's Big oh, Love Bill Dad. Bill Paxton. Bill Paxton. Yeah. Right? That's Tornado Dad. Yeah. But what if it... I mean, what if it... Well, it can't be Matthew McConaughey, but what if it was... Um, Denzel Washington. Okay, there we go. Denzel Washington <laughs> has a 1961 Soviet submarine captain. That I would watch that would movie. Be amazing because this is this is in that period of post-racial America where we don't see Denzel's color. Now, right? What about Hackman though? Hackman could be could uh, be the captain. Hackman would be you great. You know who in this eats movie. a shit ton of oranges with the skin on? Denzel Washington. He does. Yeah. yeah. Goes right through it. Hackman would be good. What about Dustin Hoffman? No. <laughs> You're not going to have Dustin Hoffman in this role. Are you trying to irradiate me, Mrs. Washington? <laughs> if you almost Mrs. ignore Robinson. this Mrs. film. Yes. Mrs. Robinson. Mrs. Washington. I'm, good I misspoke uh, because I was looking at a picture of Dustin Washington. You are canceled. <laughs> I'm not canceled. I misspoke. <laughs> this, I, you know, I, that's what I, everybody I, that gets canceled says. Every time, every time I go slightly off of the tightly scripted uh, Miss Lady Bird Johnson, are you trying to seduce me? <laughs> <laughs> All right, is the podcast over? Can we leave it with Rob's from here? <laughs> no, there's lots to go. Oh no, I just I will, want to go home. I'll wrap up my point and just say this: I think, like, the film can go sour if you can't get with Harrison Ford being cast as his character i was able to do that i don't know why i can't explain it you're amazing is why you're one of the heroes all i know is from between 1 a.m and 3 a.m last night i was totally locked into this film in a way that i did not expect Uh, it may be a reason for its high score Uh, i'm giving this giving this four and a quarter unbroken christening bottles of champagne good gravy wow i think this is a this is a capital g good submarine genre film now now we should say that a one quarter of a bottle of champagne actually has a name it's called the piccolo that's the part that the saber cuts off right no 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 a a piccolo is a is a bottle of champagne that is one quarter size oh it's a little mini so a bottle of champagne is called a bottle and then, uh, I am familiar. Right. And then a half bottle is called a demi uh-huh. bottle. And then a quarter bottle is called a piccolo. So you've given it four bottles and a piccolo. I have. I have indeed. Can you imagine if you tried to christen a ship with a piccolo? <laughs> that would be hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it'd be hard, right? Because the, you know, much more glass to champagne ratio. Right. So it would, it would bounce more often, right? Uh, yeah. 
Piccolo rhymes with Bigelow, and it makes me want to just drop one more thing into my review portion. Get and that there. is, I really like all of the edits that were hidden in this film. There's a lot of trickery involving uh, bulkhead walls and periscope tubes that are hiding cuts going on in this film. And I found that very satisfying to observe when I saw them. So drafting on that uh, another choice that she makes in this that i thought was brilliant was every time we go into the reactor with men we go to slow-mo and you know that they are cooking in there and it's probably also very very hot but also radioactive and uh and and the fact that the slow-mo is not super overwrought but it just makes it feel that much tenser because you're like oh speed it up get it done and get out yeah. <laughs> you know and uh i thought that was brilliant and i think uh it is a good submarine genre film and i uh i agree that uh you know you got to get past those accents if uh if you don't the ship will not penetrate the ice cap as it ascends and uh, I think this this ship penetrated the ice cap, but like the K-19, sustained some antenna damage on the way up. So uh, I will give it three champagne bottles and a demi. Oh. Wow. Three and a demi. Demi being a half of a champagne bottle. I mean, Submarine yeah. is is one of Ben's favorite types of movie. Yeah. And one so of my I, favorite types of movie. This is a very low score, I feel like. I'm trying to give real, wor- real world scores that people can, you know, make their movie going decisions based on. Not just everything is for. Yeah, not like my fucking trash scores. Yeah, Ben and I, I are tired of this grading on a curve business where you give everybody an A. <laughs> yeah. Ben and I are ready to get real. Yeah. That's what makes you guys the uh, the darlings of our Reddit page. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Ben and I are gonna are gonna be the boomers here and say used to be movies had to had to work. Mm. We need to teach these movies a little something called grit. Yeah, grit. This was a popcorn chomper, and I was chomping. I was chomping popcorn uh, throughout the whole movie, but nothing. St- Dicks, really, except for the nuke scenes, which are cool. The Cold War setting is something that I like. Uh, but I just, you know, over time, I, you know, maybe I have submarine movie fatigue. But I see why this movie kind of bounced off the, the floor of the ocean. The movie, <laughs> you know, the movie going public was like, why, why, what do I want this for? What's happening here? And and really what the movie was saying is what you want is Harrison Ford and Liam Neeson chewing up the scenery. This is peak Liam Neeson, right? Before he became a caricature of himself. Yeah. He's not avenging his daughter's Before death he, here. He became a nightmare for movie going audiences like us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't ride for Liam like I used to, but he's great here. Sure is. Uh, but this is, Past Pete Harrison, and I understand why they cast him. I understand why they felt like, yeah, let's Friendly get him Friendly Fire in is also past Pete Harrison as a show. Yeah, <laughs> I'll say. When was Pete Ben Harrison? Was it when he was run, op- operating the camera for Gizmodo? Yeah. What was the what was top when Ben? When did the water roll back <laughs> on Harrison? I don't know. Mm. Like Max Fun Con 3, maybe oh, yeah. it was yeah, Pete. That might have been it. 
peak Ben Harrison. Maybe maybe this upcoming Max FunCon, the the Max FunCon to end all FunCons will be where I finally peak. A California wildfire will scorch the entire sure. top yeah. of Lake Arrowhead. All That's of Lake the, Arrowhead will 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 vanish. Only, the only thing left will be the will be the Scientology bunker mm. where David Miscavige's <laughs> wife is being held. Yeah, that's that's where our sex party is. Yeah. Um, so I I feel like a real world rating for this is three bottles of champagne. Um, and I don't mean that as a like three bottles of champagne compared to Adam's inflated rating rating system. I feel like this is a it's a C. It's a C movie. Now I know, I know in in grading, right? That that's a sixty percent, which is a which is a low D. But that does that's never made any sense to me. I don't think this is a D movie. I'm taking a prescription medication for my low D, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the side effects are shocking. So maybe I'll give it. Maybe I'll give it three bottles and a piccolo. Uh. Just to just to make sure that everybody understands. I'm saying this is a this is a. This is a movie that is a fun popcorn cruncher, but you're going to come out of it, I think, wanting more. You know what? If I looked at all of your film scores on paper and I saw three and something for this film, I would have thought that you didn't think it was fun. Really? And I might skip past it for that reason. I think fun matters. That's because you're projecting your rating system onto John. I know. I can't do that. Nope. Every movie is different. We need to live our lives separately. Yeah. 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 We should I, stop doing this show. I, I don't think this show would work if our ratings always agreed. I have yeah. to criticize this movie a little bit because I felt like it, it on the whole, it holds together. You never, it, it, it never asks you to suspend disbelief. I just didn't feel any, I didn't feel any character really lived for me except for Peter Sarsgaard. It's the only one that really, he's the only one that, life really lived in everybody else was just walking around a submarine movie as fred durst would say i think we're all in agreement that <laughs> this film should not have been cause for Catherine bigelow to be put into director jail and i am yeah. glad that she is out like, agreed this is not a life sentence type no film. When, when when we look at the history of Catherine bigelow we do not have to make an allowance for K nineteen, right? It looks good yeah. within the within the tower of her achievement. Yeah, Harrison Ford gets to walk the streets a free man for the, for his accent in this film, unpunished. <laughs> he does. No, he should be punished for his later Jack Ryan garbage. Incorrect. Boo. Bad take. Because there's only one Jack Ryan for me, and that is the guy from the Office. Yeah, the guy from the Office. <laughs> uh, no, not that asshole. No, original Jack Ryan, the one Jack Ryan. The guy from 30 Rock. There may be many Jack Ryans in the Jack Ryan canon, but there is only one guy that each of us has to choose in this segment of Friendly Fire. Ben, who is your guy? That rat. That the rat? Radiant. Yeah. You're always picking the animals. The dead rat. How about you, John? Did you have a guy? Yeah, my guy. So there was the mustache guy. Who you're the, gonna have to be more specific? The mustache guy who led the rebellion, the mm. the mutiny. But then oh, there was guy. then there was second mustache guy, the guy that looks like a guy that you would see in any brew pub now. He's got a shaved head. He's slightly yeah, skinnier. He's the, he's the NCO. He's the NCO, and he 
does some really good flop sweat in this movie. I believed that actor's performance. I believed that character uh, was just trying to do a good job and not get irritated. And I hope he lived a long and happy life at the end of the film. When they're all there in the graveyard, I'm sure he was one of them there in a fat suit with some smileys people glasses on and I high-fived him at a distance. A part of me wanted Harrison Ford to be in that makeup the entire film. He looked great in that makeup. That was the right? best old, old, like, aged a guy makeup I've ever seen. They kind of Cro-Magnon-browed yeah. him a little bit, but in a way that really worked. It yeah. obscured the Harrison Fordness of him. Yeah. And Liam Neeson looked like a retired Borscht Belt comic. <laughs> <laughs> With the white sideburns and the big, yeah. big crazy rim glasses. Yeah, a lot of girls are wearing that style of glasses these days. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like it. Uh, my guy is is connected to those oranges. There's a, a moment where we follow a crate of oranges into- Those are tomatoes. The Adam. submarine. It's tomatoes. We're following tomatoes. And someone who we don't see grabs one out of the crate as it's making its way through the sub- I like that guy. It was Denzel. He wanted to eat an, a, a tomato like an apple. No one's going to miss one of these. Oh. Well, they're not going to be any fresher than they are right then. Peak of freshness. Right? That's what that guy's going after. Three days later, they start to get that wrinkly skin. My guy grabs the first orange. It's a tomato. And that's why he's my guy. You think they're bringing, bringing heirloom tomatoes on the yeah you're, on the sub? This is a perfect. That's where they're orange. This is a perfect Adam moment. Your guy grabs a tomato and thinks it's an orange. Pretty sure they were oranges, John. I thought they were tomatoes. You, you were watching the film on a watch <laughs> in black and white across the room because I didn't want to get the watch wet, so I set it up on the toilet. Mm. But I could see it. I found one interesting thing on the K nineteen Wikipedia entry that uh, I wanted to share. In 2006, a section of the sub- the original submarine was purchased by like a Russian businessman who once served on the submarine as a conscript with the intention of, quote, turning it into a Moscow-based meeting place to build links between submarine veterans from Russia and other countries. Man, rich businessmen are so cool. <laughs> <laughs> So far, the plans remain on hold, and many of K-19 survivors have objected to them. Hmm. <laughs> oh, that's what's crazy, and we didn't cover this. K-19 got rehabilitated and was in service until the 90s. Yeah. And continued to have mishaps and accidents. Like, yeah. killed killed multiple other people in, like, weird... Uh, it, like, ran into a U.S. submarine underwater at one point. This submarine was fucked. They should have broken that champagne bottle on it. They should have given it a second go. Did they just shoot the lady whose job it was to christen the boat? Whatever happened to her? Oh, well, I read that in reality, this sub was one of the first or only ships that actually was commissioned by a guy. They found some sailor and he was the one that broke the champagne bottle. Although he was the one that failed to break the champagne bottle. Now, why they wouldn't have... Why they picked a, a like a mousy girl to do it in this movie when it was actually like a weird you know, thing. Eight years later, Catherine Bigelow makes that character a guy. <laughs> you know she does. Oh, for sure. One, two, yeah. Well, guys, next week, 
I think we are not going to be rolling a 120-sided die because there is only one 1917 in theaters right now. I can't believe we're going to anger the 120-sided die by ignoring it. <laughs> we don't usually uh, break our, our fundamental code, and I'm afraid the precedent is going to is going to result in a bunch of people flooding us with like demands that we see movies. But 1917 does feel like a movie event. People should go see it. We don't negotiate with our listeners either. We we'll go see what we want to see. Yeah, there 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 were a lot of war movies that came out in 2019 that we haven't seen yet. But uh, 1917, you know, it's up for a bunch of awards and stuff. Uh, and uh, and so that will be next week's episode. So uh, tune in next week to Friendly Fire for our review of 2019's 1917. Just a lot of numbers. Yeah. We'll leave it with Rob's from here. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.